that didn't go, you should have listened to your pastor. Because it was, it was the best Christian function or event that Kathy and I have been to in years. It was just an amazing thing. And God really visited, really blessed, really showed up. And um, well, I just love evangelism. And here when Greg gave the invitation, the entire bottom floor of American Airlines Center was packed with people getting right with God. I'm going to guess 1,500 to 2,000 people. They had 3,000 people uh, outside in overflow. And uh, it was just great. Music was great. And I got to tell you, I became a Mercy Me fan. Oh, my. You like them? Now, I'm going to admit, I'm going to admit some real naivety here. I wasn't real aware of them, but oh, Mercy Me. They got up there, and they rocked the house. If you could stay in your seat, you weren't saved. And so I really, really got blessed by that. It was just wonderful to, to see somebody stand up and preach the cross and preach against sin and, and preach a call to Jesus and see it packed to the rafters for people to come hear that. And it was great. So I, I'm gonna, I need to get a Mercy Me or two CDs. Huh? And Phil Wickham was great. Phil Wickham was great, but, but mercy me. They got up and it was just over with. I could have gone home after that. You didn't like them that You like Phil Wickham better. Well, she's wrong every once in a while. Every once in a while. <clears throat> All right. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this is your word. And we come to this book of Ephesians, this revelation from God, that you would speak to us and build us up in the faith, strengthen us, give us wisdom, and Lord, help us to know who we are in Jesus. Now, would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart, and I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Amen. All right, Ephesians, well, it's a little bit off center there, but at least it's going to the right. <laughs> okay, once dead, now alive. Now, last time we closed chapter one by seeing how Jesus is the head of his church. Is Jesus head of the church? You better believe it. And in Ephesians, we see the idea of head or head and body four times. Now, Paul uses illustrations a lot to get his uh, point over, and I really like uh, uh, this one. And we're going to look at those four different times as we go through the book. But the Greek noun for head is kephale, and kephale means first the physical head, and then it extends to the figurative use of being of high status. So when you talk about headship, it's, it's, a, it's a picture or a figure of being of high status status or rank over another. So with we human beings, kephale refers to a superior rank. So he's telling us here in Ephesians that Jesus is head of his church. He is of superior rank, which goes without saying. Let's look at verse 22 of chapter 1. We're going to finish out this chapter and then most of chapter 2 tonight. <clears throat> it says, and God placed all things under his feet. 
and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Powerful. Now, first, the church is the recipient of Christ's victory and headship over all things. You know why you have the victory? Because he won the victory. That's why you have the victory. Because we are walking in the wake of Jesus' victory over death, hell, and the grave. And I read today in my devotional how he made an open show of the enemies of God, the devil and all of his cohorts. Jesus made an open display of them, a, almost a mockery of them as he, as he went off into the victory that he gained by the cross and resurrection. As he headed up into heaven, he openly triumphed over the enemies of God, the devil. So while the world so often looks with disdain upon the church, Jesus values the church extremely highly. You have high value in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Now, second, the church is also his body. He's the head, and we are the body, the hands and fingers, his voice, his feet. Now, isn't that awesome? It isn't that humbling, a little bit sobering, that we are the representative of Jesus in the world. He's the head, but we're the voice that speaks and the hands that reach and the feet that carry his gospel and so on and so forth. We are the, the body of Christ. Powerful. We're Christ's music. We're his spokesmen, his messengers, his workers, his lovers of humanity. We are his clear eyes of acceptance and forgiveness and love. That's the church. So it matters a lot how you represent his body. Okay? Third and last, we the church are the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. Everybody say fullness. And that's very, very powerful. Fullness. The fullness of him, Paul says, who fills and fulfills all things. So amazingly, we're called to be the full expression of Christ in the church. Let me give you some, some um, humbling news here, a little news flash. You and I are the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. We're the only Jesus some people will ever see. If you think about that, then it really affects the way you walk in front of this world. Because we're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. Uh, we're to be so filled with him that we literally reflect his glory to a lost and a perishing world, much like the moon reflects the light of the sun. How many of you got out there last night to see the blood moon? All right. I wasn't up early enough to catch the blood part of the moon. I saw the moon before it went red. But I was thinking, look at that moon. We wouldn't see it if it weren't reflecting light from the sun. And that moon is a perfect picture of the church. Nobody would, listen, catch this. You couldn't see the moon without the reflection of the sun. Our world is not going to see Jesus unless we, the church, reflect him. So that's the call of God upon his church body. Now put simply, as I've already said, you're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. No wonder Paul prayed for the Ephesians and for us that our eyes might be opened. Now let's go into chapter 2. It begins with an amazing statement that we once were dead but now are alive from 
the dead. I want you to say this with me. I once was dead. But in Jesus now I'm alive. Do you know how literal that is? Do you know that he's not speaking figuratively or poetically or metaphorically? He's giving us a fact that we were dead in sin. Let's look at it. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, I could tag this verse, The Way We Were. Remember that movie, The Way We Were, Robert Redford and all that? Some of you have no clue even who that is. But it's an actor. Now, and Barbara Streisand, the movie, The Way We Were. All right. He's giving us here a, a, just a statement about the way we were. This is really the way we were. How were we before we knew Jesus? We used to live when we followed the ways of this world, and we followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What a mouthful that is. He's telling us that we really were following the devil. And I'll get into that in just a moment. Now verse 3 says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature, what everybody? Objects of what? Wrath. All right, now let's look at this. Paul says that people without Christ are spiritually dead in transgressions and sins. But our culture doesn't even like to talk about the word sin. As a matter of fact, you know what I've seen? There are popular preachers who have stated, well, we don't talk about sin. Now, when I hear a preacher say, I don't talk about sin, that's like me hearing a doctor say, I don't talk about cancer. And I don't talk about heart disease. When you come into my office, I only want to talk about good things. And be sure you go home happy. Is that why we go to the doctor? We go to the doctor to find out what's wrong with us, don't we? And do you know that preaching is supposed to show people what is wrong as well as what is right? That we are in need of forgiveness of sin? Preaching is supposed to show us our need for a forgiving Savior. But if you say, I'm not going to talk about sin then I don't know what Bible you're reading. You're not reading my Bible. So the attitude out there is this. In our culture, transgression, what is transgression? What have I transgressed against? What are you talking about? I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, everything's wonderful. I'm basically a good person, all right? What does the word transgression mean? Another word for that is trespass. A trespass or a transgression is the Greek noun, noun peripatoma. Peripatoma means a violation of moral standards, an offense, a wrongdoing, a sin. When we break God's law, we have sinned. It's not a character fault. It's a sin. Okay? Now, the very word itself, transgression or trespass, assumes that there is a divine law to violate. If there's no divine law, no God, then there is no sin because everybody ought to be doing whatever they want to do. We're animals 
and we're not created in the image of God. But I want to guarantee you, we're not animals, and we did not evolve out of uh, some ancient amoeba crawling out of a, a primordial sea. No, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Okay? So, in light of that, there's also a God. And if there's a God, then there, is, there are morals and there is a right and wrong. There is an absolute right and wrong that doesn't change with cultures or societies or times or the whims of people. Okay? God gave us the Bible not for us to judge it, but for it to judge us. So let's talk about sins. Trespass or transgression is to break God's law, but sin is the Greek word harmatia, and the most commonly, it's the most commonly used word for sin in the New Testament, and it literally means to miss the mark. When somebody sins, it means they missed the mark or they missed the glory of God. They didn't hit the bullseye. They missed the mark. It does not refer to harmless, involuntary mistakes, but sin means there's been a serious offense against God, a departure from divine standards of uprightness. See, sin also assumes there's a God. Transgression assumes there's a God. God is a moral God, folks. He is not an amoral God. He's moral. We have right and wrong because God is moral. All right? And so when you break God, anybody in here ever broken a commandment of God? We all have. And everybody listening by radio or watching by video, you've broken a law of God. As soon as you did, you sinned. And see, the law, the commandments were not given to us that we would obey them because we can't obey them because we're fallen. The commandments were given to us so that we could see that we are sinners and need a Savior. That's why they were given. Now, our culture largely no longer believes in absolute truth. Truth is relative. Truth is whatever you say it is for you. You know, I'm reading Jeremiah once again because I'm going through uh, the Bible in a year, my little Bible in a year Bible, and I love it because you don't have to pray about what to read in the morning. You just go to to it according to the date. And and I'm reading Jeremiah again. And you know that I've counted seven times in the book of Jeremiah that one of the reasons God judged Judah was because they insisted on following the dictates of their own evil hearts. You know what that's telling us? That they insisted on being relativists. They insisted on saying, I'm not going to obey his commands. Truth is whatever I say it is. And you know that brought Judah under judgment and carried them into captivity for 70 years? And where are we in America right now? We're a nation of relativists. Don't tell me what's wrong. Don't tell me that that this is wrong and this is right. Uh, Because I'll tell you what is right for me And if that's right for you, then good for you. I'm happy for you, but it's not right for me. But folks, you can't do that if there is a God who has told us what is right and wrong. So it's not up to you or up to me. Because if we follow the dictates of our evil heart, here's what will happen. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Okay? So... If you say, well, I'm not going to obey God's word. I'm going to do what seems right to me. You're going to end up in 
sin which causes death. So, but our culture right now, there's no God, there's no absolutes. We've kicked the Bible out. We've taken it out of the schools, taken prayer out of the schools, taken it out of the public square, taken it out of the public arena, taken it out of all of our sports uh, events. We've taken God's word out and we are suppressing the truth. Now, doing that, we have become relativists and relativists always end up eventually falling under the judgment of God because they're going to do wrong. A relativist is always going to walk in sin. Now, our culture says there's no absolute truth, no God. So the idea of transgression or trespassing divine law, I just don't accept it. But guess what, everybody? Whether or not we understand or believe it, our transgressions and our sins against God's holy law have made us dead to God. Now, I'm not talking about you. You're looking at me real serious like, I'm not, I know the choir is here. By the way, we have 67 people now for the choir. That's just a little aside. That's going to be fun. All right. Um, God's holy law, if we break it, we die. Spiritually dead. And whether or not our world understands deadness to God, here's what they do understand. They understand I feel empty and I don't know why. You know, I watched Sunday night. I watched a couple of thousand people flood that arena. I watched people walk by me weeping. I saw young and old, every race, color, and creed down there on that floor crying out to God, asking for forgiveness. And I thought, what a sight and what a statement. All those people that week weren't walking with Jesus, didn't know him, but there was an emptiness They knew they needed something they just couldn't put. They knew something was missing, lacking. So even though you may say, well, I don't believe in absolutes, and I don't believe in absolute right and wrong, and I don't believe there there is a moral law or a moral God, you're still going to reap the consequences of walking away from him, and it's going to manifest as emptiness. I feel empty, and I don't know why. No wonder our culture is so interested in spirituality and hungry for spiritual fulfillment, like the New Age movement. But it's also open to the power of a vibrant Christian faith. And I believe that. And that's why 11.9, we're going to see people saved. We're believing for 300. We're believing for 300 people to be saved. 300 people who don't know the Lord as we speak tonight but I believe many of them are going to. Amen? I have better amen than that. Okay. Now notice Paul's reference to the way we were. We walked out our existence under the influence of, watch carefully, the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. What is that talking about? He's saying in our deadness, Spiritual deadness. We mindlessly follow the value systems of the culture around us. The ways of this world, the NIV says, or the course of this world, the King James says. And we were under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil. We were under, see, there's no, there, there is no independent person. Every person on earth is serving either the devil or Christ. There is no fence. There's no in-between. 
you're serving either the devil or Christ. So we were under the authority of the prince of the power of the air. And in our deadness, we lack discernment. I'm amazed. I'm constantly amazed. Let me tell you, I think we're in a 911 when it comes to discernment in America. Oh, we need discernment. How about, have you realized that? And you know what? A lot of people in the church need discernment. We need discernment. What is discernment? It's when you can tell if something is of God or not of God. From God or not from God. True or not true. Our lives before Christ, when we're lost, are filled and ruled by the cravings of our sinful nature. Here's a few of them. Desires, lusts, jealousy, envy, strife, selfishness, you name it, all of which the tempter inflames when you're lost and you're spiritually dead. You put that evil culture and its prince together and you have what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness. And Paul wrote of our victory over this evil kingdom in Colossians. I love this verse. I want you to read this out loud with me like you're the one preaching. Are you ready? For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Wow. Jesus came on a rescue mission. When you got saved, you didn't just get religion. You got rescued from a kingdom that was killing you. And you got translated into another kingdom. We went from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, to another kingdom, the kingdom of light. From the kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of God's dear son. All when we said, Jesus, forgive me and come into my heart. Isn't that amazing? Living in this dark kingdom made us objects of God's wrath. I want to be so clear about this. When we were living in that dark kingdom, it says in Romans 1.18... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what everybody? Ungodliness. And what? Unrighteousness of men who suppress, push down the truth and unrighteousness. All right. The wrath of God right now, according to that verse, is ongoingly being poured out on our world because of its sin. And again, he says in Ephesians 5, verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be under the wrath of God. Uh, Listen, I've learned that in a fight with God, I never win. He's bigger than me. He's always right. And if I'm fighting him, I'm always wrong, okay? But thank God we have the cross we can run to. And instead of the wrath of God being poured out there, the mercy of God and the grace of God are found at the foot of the cross. So you can live under the wrath that is ongoingly being poured out and manifesting in a variety of different ways. Or you can live under the covering of the blood of the Lamb where there is mercy and there is grace, even amazing grace, even stupendous grace, even crazy grace that I'm going to talk about more in just a moment. Paul continued in verses 5 and 6. He said, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow, I could preach on that for four weeks. Now, let me tell you about the word dead. Notice, we were dead in trespasses. Here's the word dead. It's nekros is the Greek word, and it means a corpse. Get a hold of that. When he says we were dead in sin, we were as, as dead as a corpse is dead. Everybody say with me, sin kills. Oh, yeah. Now watch this. It means a corpse, a dead body. It means literally dead, what lacks life, not able to respond to impulses or perform functions to be absolutely powerless. I want you to know, folks, dead people don't seek God. Dead people, spiritually speaking, are as dead. This is what he's telling us. He used the Greek word for a dead body to tell us how dead we were in sin. Wow. So when Paul says we were dead in sins, he means we were utterly lacking any of the life of God. Were we a human being, a functioning human being? Yes. We went to work, raised families, performed all of the the functions of a normal human being, but spiritually we were necros, dead. Dead. We couldn't respond to God. We were powerless to save ourselves. Amen. That's humbling, isn't it? Now, two of the characteristics of God come into play and came into play in our salvation. Same with me, mercy and grace. Thank God for mercy and thank God for grace. Amen? Uh, Now, let me tell you what they are. Just give you a simple definition. Mercy is kindness or concern expressed for somebody in need. It's to have compassion, pity, or to grant clemency. Mercy. It's really just to reach out somebody, uh, to somebody in distress. You know, you notice people that have the gift of mercy because that's one of the spiritual giftings, gracings that are on some people. Have you ever noticed the person with the gift of mercy is always gravitating to the hurting? My daughter is this way. My daughter has the gift of mercy. She rescues an animal a week. When she sees somebody hurting, she is crying with them. The fact that she went into medicine is the best thing she could have done because she gravitates towards hurting people. That's what people that are merciful do. So that's mercy. Now, grace describes somebody's attitude toward another, which is unilateral. Now, what that means is this, one-sided, not depending on what someone else does. Grace means that the grace giver gives his grace no matter what the recipient does or doesn't do. That's why grace is called uh, amazing. Grace is not about merit or deserving it. You don't earn grace. You don't deserve grace. But it's about an unexplained love and generosity and giving on the part of the giver of that favor. The best short definition of grace is unmerited favor. Or we should say undeserved favor. Can you say that with me? Undeserved favor. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I might have been terrible. And we were terrible when it came to God. We were sinning against God. So the Bible makes it very clear. While we were yet sinners, yet ongoingly sinning, Christ died for us. That's grace. 
He extended grace. He gave grace. Now put it this way. By his mercy, I didn't receive what I did deserve. By his grace, I did receive what I didn't deserve. Did you catch that? Now here's a good place to bring in the echo of Romans. You see, at just the right time, Paul says, when we were still powerless, that is, dead, in sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man somebody might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Read it with me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't even know we needed it. But he gave it. And verse 6 is a mind blower. It says, he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is that about? Well, listen to what the pulpit commentary says. Quote, we no longer walk according to the course of this world, but according to the life of Christ. We walk in newness of life. And so God placed Jesus at his right hand in heaven. So he has placed his people with him in heavenly places, places where the privileges of heaven are dispensed, where the air of heaven is breathed. Don't you love breathing the air of heaven? You know what the air of heaven is? The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. And we breathe that air. That's why we sing, breathe on me, breathe on me. Holy Spirit, breathe on me. Take thou my heart, cleanse every part. Holy Spirit, breathe on me. Amen. Heavenly places where there is an elevation of spirit as if heaven were already begun. And let me tell you something. You may not believe me. But it's true. Heaven has already begun for those of us who know Jesus. We're not going to go into eternal life one day. We're already in eternal life. Eternal life has already begun. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. Eternal life begins as soon as you say, Jesus, forgive me and come into my heart. That's where your eternal life began. And now, as we shared last week, the Holy Spirit is only a foretaste. It's only a down payment, a deposit of what is coming. But it is the air we breathe, and I love breathing it. Now, Paul closes his look at the way we were and the way we are with God's incredible plan for the coming ages. Look at verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, eternity is all over that verse. You know where it is? Coming ages. The ages to come. The age we're in right now is going to end one day. But it's not the last age. There are coming ages. Age upon age upon age upon age. And it's called heaven. And you know what this means? God's love isn't manifested just to get us saved. But his love is manifested to continue to shower us with his love and blessings forever and ever world without end in the coming ages. Woo! Good stuff. Now, I know some people think, here's what some people think of heaven. 
I'm just really afraid that heaven's going to be like some long, boring church service. That's what heaven's going to be, just sitting around worshiping or whatever, just like a, like a church service. No, 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 it's not. Eternity is going to be one glory unfolding after another. There won't be a microsecond of boredom. Let me tell you what boredom is. Boredom, we experience boredom because of the fall. But when you are swallowed up in victory, swallowed up in glory, swallowed up in life, there is not a microsecond of boredom. Age upon age upon age is going to be God unfolding and revealing His eternal love for us. That's going to be part of it. Everybody say amen. Amen. Now, the next few verses are some of my favorites. They sum up the truth of how we got saved. And every Christian needs to understand this because it will get you out of performance mode. Look at verse 8. For by grace, as a matter of fact, read this with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Oh, this couldn't be more clear. Grace that we just talked about, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, mixed with faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus is what saved us. Paul is real crystal clear here. This is Paul's soapbox. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not one teeny thing did we do to earn salvation. You know where our salvation was earned? On Jesus. Jesus paid it most? No. Jesus paid it all. So therefore, all to him I owe. Because Jesus paid it all. Here's the way it works on the part of God. Salvation is by grace. He extends grace. On the part of man, it is to lift up faith. So God's part is to extend the grace. Man's part is to receive it by faith. But even the faith we have came from God. For he has given to every man the measure of faith. Your own attempts at saving yourself, any good works you may have thought, would earn you credit in heaven, had zero to do with it. Salvation is all of him and none of us. And there are people all over the world who have been in church their whole lives, folks, trust me, I know what I'm saying, who still don't get this, who still believe I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to live this way and that way, I've got to perform, jump through the hoops in order to please God to be sure I'm saved. But if you were saved all by grace, then do you keep your salvation all by works? No. It's all by him. So salvation is all of Jesus and none of us. Now he says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We are his daily project. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And how much beforehand? He prepared the good works that we were to walk in and us for the good works and the good works for us before the world began. That we would walk in those good works. Not only are we saved by grace through faith, but folks, watch this. God had to make us into a brand new creation before we could even enter into the good works he had ordained beforehand that we would be involved in. In order for us to 
join into those good works, participate in those good works. He had to make us a brand new person. Let me give you an example. Before Jeff Wickwire could preach God's word, which he called me to do before the worlds were created, I believe that. He had to make me in a new creation, make me become a new creation, or I would never, ever have entered into such a divine and spiritual undertaking. Never. He had to make me into a, he had a 2 Corinthians 5.17 me. If any man be in Christ, if any woman be in Christ, he, she is a new creation. Old things are passed away and all has become new. So for us to be involved in the good works God beforehand ordained, we had to get born again, fitted with a new nature to even enter in. So again, it's all of Him and none of us. We were created anew in Christ so that we could do good works. Now let me ask you right here before I move on, what good works are you involved in? Since we were just told that every believer... It was ordained that every believer would be involved in good works and that those good works were planned before the worlds began. Then what good works are you involved in tonight? Uh, To to reach people, to minister, to serve in the church, to reach out, to, to bless people. What good works are you involved in? If you're not involved in any good works, Can I be blunt? You need to get off your blessed assurance and get involved. Because you have been called to good works. And you were born again so you could be fitted to do them. You know, as somebody said, we talk about people standing on the promises when a lot of people in the church are just sitting on the premises. Boy, it's hard getting you all to smile tonight. All right, now next Paul describes the power of the blood of Jesus. I love this, one of my favorite topics, the blood of the Lamb. He begins by once again talking about the way we were before Christ. Look at verse 11 through 13. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, in other words, who are called uncircumcision, meaning the Gentiles, by what is called the circumcision, the Jews. So he's talking here about the Gentiles and the Jews made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you... Now, who's the you? The Gentiles, which is most of us in here, okay? You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow, what a sketch that is. That's the way we were. We were outside the promises. We had no hope. We were without Christ and without God in the world. That's the way we were. The promises he's talking about here were originally given to the Jewish people, to Abraham and his descendants. The Gentiles, which is most of us, remained outside of those covenantal promises until the time of Christ. We were strangers from the promise had no hope of eternal life or of better things to come. That's what no hope is all about. You wake up and there's no reason to go on. You got no hope. And we were in the world without God. Now, I love the first two words of verse 13. Say them with me. But now. I want everybody to say it with me. But now. Now, that but now means something radical happened. 
What happened? Those of us that were without hope, without God, without Christ, without the promises, what happened? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Thank you, Lord. Amen. The phrase, but now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus is the key theme, the constant drum, the sustained song of this epistle. But now in Christ Jesus, everything has changed. In Christ Jesus, everything has changed. We Gentiles were hopeless, lost, cut off, and disconnected from God until the precious blood of Christ was poured out on the cross. Then we were brought near. Then we were delivered from lost to found, hopeless to hopeful, blind to sight, death to life, and hell bound to heaven bound. But now, in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. The Lord Jesus has broken down the wall of separation between us and God. He has broken it down. Now, verse 14, look what he says. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Who's the both? Jew and Gentile. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. You know what he's saying right there? God broke down a a huge, massive, awesome racial wall. And that ought to mean something in our day. There's so much racial tension. You know where racial tension disappears? At the foot of the cross. Because nobody's any better or any worse at the foot of the cross. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. Jesus is not only our peacemaker, but he is literally our peace. He is my peace. He's not just my peacemaker. He is my peace. He has broken down every wall, every racial wall that is erected between people. He broke it down, destroyed it. The very substance. He is literally our our peace. He is the very substance and the living spring of our peace. Establishing it at the beginning and keeping it to the end. He is my peace. I have peace in him. Amen. So verse 15, look what he says. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. That means between the two races, Jew and Gentile. He abolished it in his flesh. The law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now here the enmity the apostle is talking about has to do, as I've already said, with the breach that existed between Jew and Gentile. But we could also say black and white, yellow and red, brown and blue, whatever. He destroys racial enmity. The various ceremonies, uh, circumcision, the feasts, and so on and so forth, that the Jews engaged in, of which the Gentiles were excluded, by the shedding of his blood, Jesus removed the wall of prejudice and made one man of two. Say with me, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Do you believe that? Can we say it one more time? We are all equal at the foot of the cross. If you're at the foot of the cross, you're my brother, you're my sister, and you're my equal. 
because he tore that wall down. So I've never understood racism. I've never understood it. Stick any skin color with a needle and they all bleed red. Right? Okay. By the shedding of his blood, Jesus removed the wall of prejudice and made one man of two. I so appreciate in our church, we have every race here and welcome. All of them. And welcome. And uh, we're happy to grow that way and be Because that's what it's going to look like in heaven. Some people aren't going to like heaven. That's exactly what it's going to look like in heaven. Jesus died for all races, folks. It is crazy to, for a wall to be there because of a skin color. It's crazy. That makes no sense. Okay? Besides, Jesus was olive skin. He was Jewish which today in some parts of the world will get you killed. He was Jewish. We are, owe our salvation to a Jew. Hello, everybody. And, and all of this Bible except two books were written by Jews. Luke and Acts by a Gentile. The rest is Jewish. What are you going to do with that? What are these anti-Semites going to do with that? But I, I'm not going to go there. Look at verses 16 to 18. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the hostility between the two. In verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off. Aren't you glad he came and preached peace to you when you were far away? I was sitting in jail as a 16-year-old boy, and I couldn't have been further from God. But he came and preached peace to me. He sent a Baptist preacher. First thing I thought when I looked at him was Clark Kent. He looked just like Clark Kent. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I'm going to have to listen to this guy. And he stood up, and he opened up with John 3.16. He preached a simple gospel message, and, and something grabbed me by the throat and grabbed me by the heart, and I felt compelled to come to Christ, and that was when I was 16 years old. God sent Clark Kent to reach me and preach peace to me. And even though I was still in jail and in trouble, I found peace with God. And when I found peace with God, I experienced the peace of God. Because he is my peace. Amen? So there's no racial disparity at the foot of the cross. Everybody stands on equal ground. Every race, gender, social background, place of origin, blend into one new man in Christ Jesus. And that's it tonight. Let's stand together, can we? And I'm practicing. I'm finishing at 8.15 because starting next week, the choir is going to take over at 8.30 and practice uh, for Christmas. And um, so I've been kicked out. And that's fine with me. That's okay. Uh, so they'll be practicing from 8.30 to 9.30. And all of you that are in the choir, thank you so much for that um, servant's heart and dedicating that time because I know on Christmas we're going to have a wonderful time in the Lord. You're going to have a blast in the choir with Keith, uh, who does great choirs, and we're going to have a wonderful Christmas. Can you believe we're talking Christmas already? Can you believe that? Now, let me, let me tell you quickly, in case you haven't seen the e-blast that I sent out, um, 
No, it was on Facebook, not an e-blast. My Facebook page, I, I wrote this, and I've already had almost 850 reads. But here's what I said. I've been doing a series on Sundays on Tag a Friend. We're talking about the different people that Jesus spoke with, communicated with, and whose lives he changed. And we've been just kind of doing little biographical sketches of these people. But in light of everything going on in our world, I definitely felt switched up by the Holy Spirit in prayer this week. And I've learned, if I don't preach what the Holy Spirit says, it goes this far and falls to the ground. So I'm going to go with the Holy Spirit. And I really feel impressed to preach on this. Let not your hearts be troubled. And I'm going to preach on... um, the predictions Jesus made about the last days and how he said in the midst of these predictions, he said, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. He said that sandwiched right in the middle of these predictions, all of which were bad for the last days, rough stuff, wars, rumors of wars, plagues um, oh he just went through this this list so you know what I'm going to do I'm going to look at the list and, and I'm going to I'm going to here's the word that came to me comfort ye comfort ye my people so I'm going to bring a word not just talking about the dire prophecies but how we are supposed to walk in peace no matter what's happening around us. He said there's going to be racial wars. There's going to be bloodshed. There's going to be violence. He said there's going to be rampant sexual perversion. He said there's going to be all these things. But right in the middle of it, he said, let not your heart be troubled. Talking to his people. So I'm telling you that so that you might even want to bring somebody. I've already had, like I said, 850 people have read this, and a lot of them have favorited it. I know some of you are upset and kind of down because of what's happening in the world. Oh, Ebola. Oh, ISIS. All these terrorists. Seems like everything's getting worse and worse. What are we going to do? Look up. Walk in peace. Preach the word. Soldier on. Live in victory. It's the world whose hearts are going to fail them for fear, not the church. So I'm going to preach on it this weekend. So bring somebody who needs the Lord because we're going to walk out of here encouraged, not dragging our feet, wondering what to do next. Let me tell you about God. He's just fine. You know where Jesus is? He's sitting down. He's not pacing the floor of heaven. Oh, no, oh, no. Isis, Ebola. He's sitting down. He is sitting down. Serene. Praying for you, praying for me. So that's going to be the message Sunday. So spread the word. Get in here and get encouraged.